0: Our New Testament reading comes from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I am, grateful th- uh, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithfully and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for the very reason I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The gospel reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. teacher he replied speak a certain creditor had two debtors one who ho- owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay he canceled the debts for both of them now when now which of them will love him more simon answered i suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt and jesus said to him you have judged rightly then turning toward the woman he said to simon do you see this woman To whom little is forgiven, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has has saved you. Go in peace. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we gather now, and be with us as we listen to your scriptures. Would you give us your spirit? Would you teach us? Would you awaken us? Would you be near to us? And would you restore unto us the joy of our salvation? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this Lent, uh, we are reading through selected episodes from the Gospel of Luke in which we see Jesus describe and enact the kind of justice that God desires and is committed to establishing on the earth. And what we've seen over the past couple of weeks as we've kind of made our way into the beginning of Luke is that justice is not merely an implication ...of the good news of what God has done and is doing in Jesus. But justice is actually central to God's mission in the world. It's a central aspect of what it is that Jesus came to teach and do. Which doesn't mean that your notion of justice or my notion of justice... ...or someone else's notion of justice lies at the heart of what God is all about. What it means is that God's own vision of justice is what drives his mission in the world. And as we read through the whole story of the Bible, what we find is that that when when we focus in on the theme of justice and how it gets developed over the course of the biblical story, the accent falls primarily not on God's retributive justice, you know, the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth approach for punishing wrongdoers, but overwhelmingly on God's restorative justice, God's commitment to set things right, to restore humanity and all of creation to this state of wholeness and flourishing that God intends for his world. And wherever we do find the retributive, we find it in service of the restorative. But often, especially as we keep reading the story of the Bible all the way into the stories about Jesus, we find that just when we expect God to drop the hammer of justice, right? Just when we, expect, when we expect for God to give an evildoer his comeuppance, what we find instead is forgiveness. We find instead God's willing to forego retribution and simply embrace this restorative work amidst sinful people. And that's what we find in the story that we just read. But that's not all we find. Actually, what we find in the story is this surprising head-to-head conflict between two ways of dealing with human brokenness. One is about being restored, which begets a life of love. And the other is about maintaining the illusion of not needing to be restored, which begets a life of pride. And what we learn from the story is that pride is the great enemy of love. Forgiveness, on the other hand, specifically the experience of receiving forgiveness, is what we need in order to become a people of love who join God in his work of extending the justice of God's kingdom to the people and places to which God calls us. Pride is the enemy of love. Forgiveness is its fertilizer, its catalyst. And I think as we get into this story, what we'll see is that this, this story that Jesus that we that we see Jesus enacting here is one that that gives us something uh, of a lesson as we as we acknowledge our own tendencies to manage our sinfulness, right? To to manage our brokenness by all of our various strategies, whether that's um, the strategies of ignoring it or hiding it or trying to control it by our own power or run away from it without running toward God or or simply to minimize it as if to say that our brokenness isn't as broken as we might think it is whatever our strategies may be this is a profoundly liberating and transformative story in which we see the life that is available to us when we're willing to embrace Jesus who embraces us and receive the forgiveness that unleashes a life of love in the world. So let's look at this story. Where's Jesus? He's in this lower Galilee town of Nain. That's where the story is taking place. Uh, we know that from several verses before, the ones that we uh, just read. And Nain is this town where Jesus has recently performed a miracle in which he has brought back from the dead the son of a widow And in the town, the people respond to this act of Jesus by saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. Jesus is saying and doing things that remind the people of these old stories from the Bible of prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And they're recognizing something in Jesus that is akin to the power of those prophets of old. And so very quickly, Jesus has earned for himself a reputation in Nain as a prophet. And so it's no surprise that this local religious leader, Simon the Pharisee, decides that he wants to invite Jesus over for dinner to find out what he's all about. That's what religious leaders do, right? That's what I would do if someone moved to my neighborhood and began to do things like this. I would want to find out what this guy's deal is. I'd want to know whether we all ought to be hitching our wagon to his train or whether we should be calling 911 or anywhere in between, right? I mean, um, this is what religious leaders do. And so Jesus goes to dinner at Simon's house, and when he gets there, what we see unfold is actually pretty surprising. A woman from the city who's described in such a way that we're supposed to recognize that she is a prostitute. She also comes to Simon's house when she hears that Jesus is there, and she begins to weep and wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Let's put on our first century Palestine glasses here as we look at this scene so we can understand what's going on. Um, so this would have been a low table, like lower than the ones we sit at. They're not sitting in chairs around this table. They're sitting on the floor. Um, and they're reclined at the table. And so Jesus' feet are going to be behind him, right? His knees are bent. His legs are to the side and kind of behind him. Uh, and it's probably a, like a sort of U-shaped table, which would have been customary in those days where Jesus would be over to one side because he's the invited guest of honor. And Simon, the host, would have been right at the center, at the the head of the table, which is where the host goes. And of course, since Simon's a Pharisee, this is his house, he's a religious leader who scrupulously follows the Jewish law, we can also know quite confidently that ritual purity is a big deal in Simon's house. Everyone at the table would need to be ceremonially clean, people who are observing the rules of, of the Torah But then there's this woman, a known prostitute in the city, and she comes in to Simon's ceremonially clean house. And that in itself is like a big no-no. She's there as an intruder, not as an invited guest. She's unwanted by everyone except Jesus. But then it gets worse. Not only does she come into the house, Uh, Which would have been perceived as a defilement of Simon's home, but then she comes up behind Jesus, who, remember, is sitting reclining at table with his with his feet behind him, and she starts doing things to his Um, feet—things that would have been perceived as sexually provocative acts: the letting down of her hair, the kissing of his feet. This is an absolutely appalling situation according to the cultural values uh, and the religious values of that time and place. And so Simon and his buddies, you can just see them, they're like they're squirming, right? Um, this is so awkward. They don't know where to look because what's going on is is really inappropriate and they don't know what to do and so Simon is the host of the meal like he's bound by the honor code of his time he's he's not allowed to call out Jesus in a way that would shame him that's not what the host is allowed to do that would be really shameful for Simon but there's something really inappropriate going on in his house and at this table and Jesus is just inexplicably unfazed this is really awkward it's a moment where no one knows What to do. And so Simon mutters to himself, not audibly into the room, but in his own internal monologue, Simon says to himself if this man were really a prophet, he would know. He would know who this woman is who is touching him like that. This is all Simon needs to discredit and dismiss Jesus. Right, If he were really a prophet, if his reputation that he's earned here in Nain, if it it were real, he would know. If he were legit, he would reject her. If he were real, if he were really a prophet, he'd be keeping it clean. He'd be acting more appropriately. He'd be fitting our expectations. And he's not. I think Luke wants us to ask the question, how well do we fit into Simon's shoes here, right? Because Simon and his buddies, the Pharisees, they they begin where? In their interactions with Jesus, they begin with their own settled confidence in their way of thinking and living into the world. They know the answers. They're the experts. Their job is to judge Jesus, right? Right? And so they they begin from that place of settledness and they begin to assess Jesus to see if he's someone who will fit nicely into their pre-existing way or if he's someone to be rejected. And what's interesting to me about Simon here is that he's both a religious person and a skeptic as it pertains to Jesus, right? They're they're the religious leaders. They're also Jesus doubters. This is where they are. And and honestly, what's so interesting to me about that is because this dynamic of, uh, of kind of beginning with our settledness, I think is the, di- is the dynamic that so, is so common among both the religious and the skeptical today, right? In our own world, in our own space of life, our settledness is the very thing that often precludes our genuine seeking and our genuine listening. When we already know the answer, we listen not to learn, right, but to judge. We seek security in our certainties. We find our righteousness in being correct or being enlightened or being woke or whatever. And we continually seek vindication in the echo chambers that reinforce our current way of thinking. Right? And we organize communities around sameness of mind or sameness of status or sameness of background or ethnicity or sameness of economic bracket, what have you. But all of these things, it's important that we see all of these things are features of our own Pharisee-like settledness. And then here comes Jesus into our little dinner parties (laughs) to shake up our settled lives. The Jesus we invite, or the Jesus Simon invites, is the sanitized manageable Jesus, right? We invite him into our lives because he seems like a nice addition to our dinner party where we still get to sit at the head of the table. But then it's the real Jesus who shows up and he brings his friends. And they're all intruders. They all just intrude into our own little dinner party where we're at the head of the table. And he ruins it at least if you see things the way Simon does, right? If you're the Pharisee, Jesus is a party pooper. He's a ruiner. A real prophet wouldn't do that, would he? This is, of course, what Simon says to himself as he sits there appalled at Jesus' tolerance of this sinful woman's presence at the dinner party, but that is the moment that Jesus chooses to go into full-blown prophet mode, right? Right? and he reads his mind. (laughs) He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon's out loud words to Jesus are respectful. Teacher, please speak. And then Jesus begins to tell this parable about two debtors, one who owes two years' salary and another who owes two months' salary. And the creditor cancels both of their debts, and Jesus asks Simon the simple question, which debtor would love the creditor more? And Simon answers rightly, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt, right? At this point, Simon's tracking with Jesus because Jesus is speaking in terms he can understand. And Jesus says, you know, very good, very good, Simon. And you can almost anticipate where this story is going, right? This is going to be about debt. The story is going to be about debt and how forgiveness. Um, and, how, how, and the forgiveness that one person needs relative to another. Who needs it more? Who's worse off, right? And you can almost feel Simon beginning to see where it's going. He's looking over at the woman and he's saying, oh, yeah, 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 okay. All right, she is indeed a huge debtor. She's one of those. She's the other. And that's when Jesus turns the tables. And he begins to contrast something else, not debt, but love. And while talking to Simon, Jesus turns toward the woman who's behind him and he asks Simon to look at her. And he says, do you see her? And Jesus begins to contrast the extravagant love that this woman has been showing him all evening with Simon's own failure to show Jesus just some of the more basic features of appropriate hospitality. Whereas Simon has failed to anoint Jesus' head, This woman has been washing and even kissing Jesus' feet. Dirty feet, undesirable feet that no one wants to touch. Whereas Simon, the host of a formal dinner, would have been expected to use olive oil to refresh Jesus, to anoint his head. This woman, of whom no one expects anything, has used her own tears and even her own precious ointment in this alabaster jar, probably the most expensive thing she owns, maybe the only expensive thing that she owns. She's poor. That's why she's a prostitute. And as Jesus points this out, he says to Simon, Look, so I have to tell you this, okay? The reason she has shown me great love is that she has been forgiven for her many sins. And that's when we realize this isn't the first time Jesus has met this woman. Presumably, there was an encounter before this where Jesus met her and granted her forgiveness of sins and restoration to the community. And it's on that basis that she's showing up at this party. And it's on that basis that she's weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her tears because she has been forgiven much. She loves much. And then Jesus says, But to the one whom little is forgiven loves little. The parable isn't really about debt. It's about love. It's not about comparing sins or seeing who has the more dramatic story of salvation. Rather, it's about experiencing the real love of God for the real you. Not your mask. Not your pretend self that you polish and put forward in the mirror, or toward others. But the real you, the real debtor you, beautiful, broken you, it's about knowing that God knows you and loves you completely. And it's about knowing that God delights to grant you forgiveness completely, whether your debt is little or medium or big, and it's a story about living in the reality of this restorative justice where God meets you exactly where you are and makes it right with you through his forgiveness, through his love. It's a story about living in the reality of God's restorative justice that touches every aspect of the brokenness of our lives, beginning with our own stories and our own pasts and our own presence, which touches the personal and the interpersonal and the institutional and the environmental everything. And that restoration of justice is exactly what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And it's exactly what this woman is beginning to do to experience and participate in herself. In the episode just before this story, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus from the prison cell where John is being held to ask if, in fact, Jesus, if he really is the Messiah. John's got to know. And Jesus responds simply by telling the messengers, he said, hey, look, go tell John what you see. Just tell him what you see. Jesus doesn't give a yes or no. He just simply points out what is it that you are seeing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor hear the good news. All the signs of the restorative justice of God's kingdom that the prophets of old foretold and that Jesus is actually teaching and doing in their midst. And then when John's messengers had gone, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Because what God is doing anew in Jesus is greater than all that has ever come before. And those who are so privileged to participate in the kingdom and the justice that is restored are the greatest, greater than the heroes, greater than the prophets that came before. The sinful woman with all of her baggage and all of her pain and all of her history and all the damage she's done to her own life and to the lives of others, she is greater and the heroes of the faith that have come before, greater than the religious leaders around this table, greater than the impressive people, greater than the resourced people, greater than the people who have managed to keep their lives somewhat polished and together. Why? Because they have all that stuff and she has Jesus. She's been born of the Spirit. She's become a participant in what God is now doing In the world, this kingdom of justice that is beginning to take hold of her own life and beginning to flow from her into the lives of those around her. She's experienced forgiveness and the restorative embrace of God. And as a result, she's becoming an instrument of God's love in the world. She's been forgiven much, so she loves much. And then Jesus turns to her and he says, Your sins are forgiven. And we're supposed to see that that is as much for the Pharisees' benefit, if not more so, than it is for hers. Because presumably, these are words she's already heard Jesus say. That's why she's there in the first place. But this time, she hears them in the presence of the religious leaders, and the religious leaders hear the words as well. And in their settledness, they question, who is this guy, and what does he think he can do, forgiving sins? They question Jesus' authority to say such things. And so they're left with their concerns. They're left with their resistance, while the woman is free to go in peace. Two responses to Jesus two ways of relating to our own brokenness, two visions of justice. And what we see in Jesus as the one that we might expect God to condemn is exactly the one he embraces. And the one we would expect God to commend is exactly the one he challenges to become more like the one who is in great need. Pride is the enemy of love. But mercy is the doorway to restoration. Being a participant in God's restorative justice, which is what you're called to do in Christ, what I'm called to do in Christ. Becoming a participant in God's restorative justice and this movement of it requires becoming a recipient of it because it is only that which we have ourselves received that we really have to offer anyone. It is only as we have been loved that we ourselves know how to love. And if you think about it, you really can't love someone very well while you're also thinking that you're better than they are. Right? You can't. Because the, and you also can't really love someone very well if you think they're a lot better than you because the version of them that you love is a mask. It's not the real them. But learning to love others out of the love which we have received in Christ, God's love towards sinners in Christ, That is the kind of love that sets people free. That is the kind of love that brings forth restoration and justice in our lives and in the world. Last weekend, we had a really great men's retreat that many of us were on. And Jeff White spoke to us about spiritual friendship. And in his last session, he was talking about what is it that makes a good spiritual friend. And talking about a good spiritual friend is one who is able to walk with us and able to help us experience the restorative love of God in our own lives, even as it touches our broken places. And he says, look, a good spiritual friend who's going to be able to hear your confession and speak to you life-giving words, that friend has to be unshockable. Look, if you're shockable you're not very good at hearing the confession of other people. And if you're not very good at hearing the confession of other people, you're not going to be a very good instrument of restorative justice. Because guess what? The people who need it are really broken. And what makes someone unshockable is when you begin to actually see and engage your own real brokenness, to recognize your own debt, that is canceled. Your own need that God meets. Your own powerlessness to master the sin in your life. Your need to be loved as you really are. When you begin to experience that yourself, the way this woman has begun to experience that herself, that's when we become a people of love. That's when we become a people of, Of restoration who are able to live in solidarity with our fellow sinners who are able to see ourselves as instruments of God's restorative love in the lives of those around us and who are able to be hopeful for our neighbor's life no matter what it is that they tell us because we're able to be hopeful about our own lives no matter what it is that we see in our own selves when we learn to receive the embrace of God in Christ that is when we begin to be able to extend it to others. Confession is the acknowledgement of our powerlessness and our belief in the power of God to forgive. Trusting that this, this process, is how God actually breaks the power of sin in our lives, restores us to wholeness, and unleashes us in the world to work alongside of him as instruments of justice. You know, this is an open-ended story that Luke gives us. We don't actually see in the end what Simon does with this. We're sort of left not knowing. And I think part of the rhetorical strategy that Luke is employing there is that as we read it, it's an open-ended experience for us too. What are you going to do? With this Jesus? What are you going to do with this kind of justice that touches even this kind of brokenness? What are you going to do with the one who embraces you? Will you embrace him and be set free? Or will you, in your settledness, continue to ask the question who could possibly have that kind of authority? The invitation to embrace Christ is the invitation to be embraced by the one who loves you. May God give us grace to know his love, his peace, and his presence. Let's pray. God, thank you for your extravagant love toward us in Jesus. By your spirit, would you call forth from us extravagant love toward you and toward our neighbor, that we may be made more whole, and that through us, you may be continuing your work of bringing peace, reconciliation, and restoration in the world. Our God of justice, we pray through the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.